All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer, I'm a data scientist at IWOCA and I will be your host. So today our guest is Nick Singh. Nick first did a Bachelor of Science at the University of Virginia and then did a couple of internships. He joined Microsoft as a software engineer and then moved to Google in the data infrastructure team. After that, he had a bunch of full-time jobs. He worked as a growth engineer at Facebook and also worked on growth and marketing at SafeGraph. A couple of months or years ago, he decided to quit his job in order to write a book, Is the Data Science Interview, a book which covers everything you need in order to land your dream data science job. So I've actually got the book right here and yeah, really covers a wide range of topics from CV, cold email, portfolio projects, but also things related to the interview, obviously. So behavioral questions, technical questions. It has a few questions in the book to help you practice and also case studies. So if you're looking for a job in data science or machine learning, uh, I've read it, it's pretty good. So I actually strongly recommend this book. All right, so enough with the intro now. Hi, Nick. How is it going? I'm really excited to have you here with me today. So yeah, how are you? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me on. So yeah, thanks a lot to you. I'm very happy and really looking forward to this conversation. So I mentioned this in the intro, but you're kind of the master of how to ace the data science interview. So I was just curious, like, how did you get your first internship at Microsoft? You obviously know a lot of things, but I guess a few years ago, you didn't know as much. So yeah, what did you do? How did you get it? So actually, what's funny, I haven't listed on my resume. My first ever internship wasn't at Microsoft. It was at a company that was smaller and it's just kind of not well known. So I kind of removed it from my LinkedIn since I've worked at some of these name brands. But that first company I ever worked at, it was called CCRI, Commonwealth Computer Research Incorporation, where I did data science work. Um, I got lucky. I was at the career fair and they liked me and they liked my Android project that I'd worked on. And they liked that I liked math and they just took a chance on me. And honestly, that's one of those things where it's just sort of like, I wish I could tell you, you know, these strategies are foolproof and there's no luck involved. But I'll be honest, my first ever internship I just got lucky that they were at my university career fair and they liked me. I think the thing that I would say that maybe the part that wasn't luck was the fact that I had an Android software development project that I could speak to that they found interesting that showcased my own uh, interests. Mm -hmm. And the other part was when they interviewed me, they asked me, how would you define, uh, how would you explain a p-value to a layman? Mm -hmm. And I had recently taken AP statistics. So I was able to ace that question. Even though it's not a very hard question, you'd be surprised at how many people stumble. Um, so yeah, that's how I got my first ever internship. To actually get Microsoft though, which is what your question was, how did I get to Microsoft? Again, I got lucky, but here is where I got a little bit making my own luck rather than just pure lucky. I was again at the University of Virginia and Microsoft recruiters had come on campus and they said, we would review your resume for free and give you feedback. So I showed up and this was on the first week of my second year of college. 
Mm-hmm. And most other sophomores, you know what they were doing in their first week of college? It's syllabus week. You have no homework. Everyone's partying, they're drinking, they're having the world's best time. And I, like a little nerd, am right there in the career fair, right in the first week of school, getting my resume reviewed. And they liked my resume. And then from there, they liked my internship experience. And that's how I really got Microsoft. So that one was a bit lucky. But in each of these, it's sort of like I had to put myself out there, you know, to make my luck. So in, in both cases, you went chatting with them with them at the beginning, and then this started with a chat from a career fair or whatever, and then you ended up getting the job. Is that right? Exactly right. And then for later and later jobs, I got more and more skilled. So then they started coming through like random or means, right? So my internship at Google's Nest Labs, their IoT unit, mm-hmm. where I was on the data infrastructure team, that came through a cold email where I'd emailed a recruiter telling them I love their product, I love IoT, I want to join Google's Nest, you know, smart things platform. And I followed up, followed up. And on my third email, they got me, they, they're like, oh, okay, cool. We'll give you an interview. And then, you know, I did those technical interviews, got the job. Facebook was a referral. And then most recently at SafeGraph, that was again, a cold email. So it was my later jobs really came from cold emailing and being a little bit more intentional and smart about the job hunt. Can you maybe just describe what a cold email is? I'm not sure if everyone knows what it is. It's a strategy I so wish everyone would have known earlier. And it's something I wish I'd known earlier, but now I preach it. And it even has a full chapter in my book. I think it's chapter three is all about cold email. So what's a cold email? Well, when you email, when you get introduced to somebody through a mutual friend, that's like considered a warm introduction or a warm referral. A cold email, that's when you're emailing someone you just don't even know. You've never met them. You have nothing in common with them. But if you can write a really good pitch, a short email, maybe 100, 150 words, that really puts yourself out there and explains to the hiring manager, recruiter, why you're a good fit for the job, you'd be surprised at how many people get back to you and give you an interview. Now, it's not foolproof. Maybe it's only one in eight emails works out, Mm -hmm. but you can ship out eight emails a day, you know? So my most recent job at SafeGraph, I got by cold emailing the CEO where I pitched at him and told him like how perfect I am for the job and that he should interview me. And 24 hours later, we had an interview scheduled. And so at Google, if I understood correctly, you actually sent three different cold emails. Like the first one didn't work, second one didn't work, but the third one actually worked. How, it, how do you was, explain? It was all to the same person okay. and um, it was just more falling up three times because um, they had said something like, Hey, thank you for coming to our open house event. Um, We really like your background or something like that. But I think it was a generic email who would come to their event in Silicon Valley. It was a very generic email. So I was like, Hey, I'm very much interested in interviewing. And they're like, ah, they didn't say anything. And then I had to interview and I had to email again. And then a third time where it's like, Hey guys, here's my background. Here's me. Here's why I'm a great fit for data infrastructure. And finally, they hit me up. Okay, okay. Very cool. Very interesting. So the first part of your career, you focused on like software engineering and data engineering. And then, if I understand correctly, at Facebook and later on, you focused on growth. So work that is more closely related to data science, I would say. So first of all, can you just maybe again explain just the difference between data engineering and data science for people that are not really familiar with this? 
Absolutely. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit more clarity. My, my career is a little bit of a mess. So I've just been jumping around between data science, data engineering, software engineering, and growth to the point that it's kind of all combined. So I don't really see yeah. it as cleanly defined. And I think that's one of those interesting things where even the industry doesn't have as clear distinctions between the different roles as you might expect, right? So what one company calls a data engineer, another might call a data scientist, honestly, you know, like it, they probably shouldn't, but that's what ends up happening. So I think data engineers are more involved with the infrastructure and are writing more Python code and Airflow jobs and working with the cloud technologies to make sure the data is clean and in a spot and always coming in with good SLAs. Versus data scientists, I feel like are more about exploring the data and operationalizing the data to derive insights from the data, as well as maybe even building models on top of that data that can help drive business outcomes or future products. So I feel like um, that's the difference between data engineering and data science. And I think one thing I would let your audience know is coding is in short supply. And yes, math is hard. And you know, for data science and machine learning, you got to be good at math and statistics, but you also got to be good at coding. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the way the job market is right now, what's more in short supply isn't people who don't know math. It's, it's the people who know coding. That's in short supply. Because um, I feel like companies can get by without having data scientists, but they can't really get by without having software engineers. So you see this massive suck of talent into software engineering. So really good data engineers who love to code might just become software engineers. So that's made data scientists do data engineering and that's made data analysts become data scientists. So you kind of see this like trend towards everyone going towards a little bit more Cody. So I would basically explain, I think you had asked like, how did I make these transitions? And I think what came fundamentally was a love of coding and a love of math. Once you have those two, whether you label me as a growth engineer, data scientist, ML engineer, I could do it all because as long as you're really good at Python, you understand statistics and can ask really good business questions, you you're you can move between roles. Makes sense. So is there one role that you preferred compared to the other? Is there one that you really yeah. liked? Each has its own beauties, but I love being a growth engineer at Facebook. So I know not everybody knows what growth engineering is. Mm-hmm. So I feel like growth engineering is this really unique mix of data science, marketing, software engineering, and consumer psychology. Okay. That's a lot of different terms. So what really is growth engineering? It's it's figuring out ways to grow your product through A-B testing and then analyzing the data from the A-B tests and having you know some background in consumer psychology and like UX, UI design to really think, hmm what should we even A-B test, right? So it's a very full stack sort of role. It's not a good role if you just love to code. It's not a good role if you just love data. It is a good role if you love thinking about human psychology, how we use an app, what we could A-B test, implementing A-B tests, and then cutting the data. So I loved being on the growth engineering team at Facebook because they're the kings. They're the kings at figuring out How do we get you to stay on the product longer? How do we retain you? How do we engage you? They're the kings of it. And they have the most data out of anybody, right? They've got the world's data at their fingertips and they're constantly testing. So at Facebook, I ran a whole bunch of A-B tests all day and then analyzed the data, did a lot of SQL querying to figure out what A-B tests are working well or not, as well as I actually coded the different A-B tests, right? So as a software engineer, I'm actually implementing different experiences 
and implementing some of the infrastructure around A-B testing, those different experiences. Okay, yeah, no, that that's quite clear. Can you maybe just give an example of a project or an A-B test that you've implemented or that you worked on so that, yeah, we can have a deeper yeah. dive into what you did. At sure. Least. So within the growth team, I was on a new person experience team, also known as NPX. So that was the team responsible for creating kind of that onboarding flow that would help acclimate users to Facebook. Now, you might be thinking a lot of folks listening might already have a Facebook account, so they don't even remember this flow because they joined Facebook five, six, 10 years ago, right? But in a lot of developing countries, like in India and Philippines, people are still joining Facebook, okay? But here's the problem, Neil. When you join YouTube, you just search funny cat videos and you got a thousand million videos to watch. You're happy. Mm-hmm. But when you join Facebook and you have no friends, you have nobody to wish a birthday to, you have nobody to message, your newsfeed is empty. You got nothing. So what do you do if your app has nothing in the first hour? You quit the app. This is the world's worst app. I'd rather use YouTube and TikTok than use Facebook as a new user, right? So our team was figuring out how do we build the flow so that we could retain users more so that once they joined, they would stick around for two weeks. So all the key North Star metric for our team was retention at two weeks. What percent of the users who joined today will still be an active user two weeks from now? So that was our team. Some of the different experiences I helped make were around profile pictures and changing up the UI UX to make sure people uploaded their profile picture more. Because if they upload a profile picture, they're more likely to receive friend requests. They're more likely to have their friend requests accepted, which means that they have content on their feed, which means they stay on the app. So I did a lot of experimentation around uploading profile pictures for new users. Okay. And you tested different web design approaches, I guess, and checked which one was making users stay longer in the app or just simply stay in the app more than two weeks. Exactly. That that was the whole mission, figuring out how do we increase retention. So we found some really funny and interesting things, right? So you might think that having less steps is improves like the end of convert uh, improves the flow, which yeah. is totally the correct intuition to have. Mm-hmm. But if you make your onboarding process too light, and you say, you know what, you don't even need a profile picture, just like hop on in, then they just have a really sucky account and then nothing happens. Mm -hmm. So that was this really fun experimentation of how complex should your onboarding flow be so that they're most acclimated to Facebook without like wanting to quit right then and there. So that was one big lever we would play around with. Another really interesting thing is it's all about friending. Early friending is so key because if they don't make friends, if they don't want to stick on the app. Yeah, you're alone, right? So we worked on a lot of different cool experiences around how do we improve the amount of friends they make in that first hour. Um, So we did a bunch of like, hey, you could just like tap friends instead of hitting add friend, add friend. It's like a check mark. And in one go, you could add a bunch of friends. And the we even tried like pre-filling out the checklist. So it's like, by default, we're going to just send 20 friend requests. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, these are a little spammy, they're a little hacky, and there are all kinds of problems that can occur. But uh, yeah, these are a bunch of different experiences we tried out. And I kind of like the fact that you mentioned the metric is actually two weeks retention. That seems quite short. Is that because 
people usually just sign in and then if they don't like it, they will churn directly. They don't stay for a few weeks and then go. If they stay for a few weeks, it means they've made friends and they're happy. That's a great question. And actually, it's something funny we talk about in our book in chapter, I think, uh, nine on product sense, um, which is about how do we pick a good metric? Because that's like a really classic interview question. So the answer is definitely other teams care about like retention in general. But us as an early kind of growth team on that new person experience team, we had to kind of come up with a metric that would actually reflect our work and not other teams' work, if that makes sense, right? So if we looked at one-year retention rate, it's not really because we onboarded them nicely. It's because of everything else someone else did, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why we had to do a smaller metric. Another thing is if we set up an experiment, it takes us two weeks to even get one day's worth of data. Does that make sense? Like you got to wait 14 days to even get one day's worth of data, right? So if you make that time span one month retention, it's like, hey, by the time we even have data, it's already the next month and we operate on a quarterly cycle. Okay, so it's sort nice. of like, yeah, you can't really get your results in time to like make decisions if you always have to wait for next month and next month and next month. So that's kind of where we just settled in on that two week retention rate to balance like immediacy of like, hey, we can get a result quickly in 14 days versus, hey, like this is a little holistic thing. Um, and it like kind of bakes into a good experience, right? Because if we went all the other way to be like one day retention, we could do some really spammy stuff that would work for a day. Yeah. Okay. And then people just never use it after that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, one day would be, okay, I see. So it's a good trade-off between not too short and you just send loads of spam to optimize this metric and not too long so that you can quickly get some data, make decisions and move on, I guess. Exactly. So one last question around Facebook, and it's more about like big tech companies in general. I've never worked in those companies, but I'm just wondering, how do you see your, the relationship with your teammates like, or your coworkers? Are they like teammates or you know, collaborators? Or is it more something like competition where you have to be the best and you want to be better than the other data scientists or growth engineer because you want to get this promotion first? How, how do you see this? I feel like it it was it, it is definitely a very different dynamic because after Facebook, I worked at a company that was eighteen people big versus Facebook, where you know it was I don't know like twelve thousand engineers big. So there is a definitely a different dynamic. I'm not sure it manifests itself in competition, right? So I feel like a traditional older company it might be more competitive because there's less opportunity to go around. Mm-hmm. But even when I was at Facebook, Facebook in 2017 was still growing fast enough mm-hmm. that there was more work to be done than people to do it. So you didn't really feel that competition. I feel like competition comes when there's finite opportunities and everyone's battling for it. But I think Facebook since 2017, when I joined till now, has easily doubled their engineering headcount. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So yeah. if you want to be a manager, you can be a manager because they're you know, every team's doubling. That means they need double the new managers and they can't hire from outside because it's a very competitive market. So I didn't feel like it was competitive, but I definitely like the camaraderie better at a smaller company because it was a lot more mission driven. And I felt a lot more like close of like, oh, wow, we're this company and we're doing these cool things. Versus at Facebook, it's such a big org. You don't really have that kind of same like, oh, we're Facebook. Look at us. 
especially when you're getting maligned in the media and everything, it's just hard to be like, you know, a lot of people are just like, ah, it's just a job, you know, and I could kind of get that vibe from some people. I mean, I loved my time there and I took it pretty seriously, but you would definitely find people who were like, ah, it's just a job, whatever. And I don't really love that, but hey, teach their own. Do you also feel that at SafeGraph, so the, the startup that you worked on mm-hmm. after Facebook, do you feel that you had more impact because, you know, you were only 18. So obviously, I mean, it's different if you're 12,000 or whatever you write, you will write some code, someone will review it, someone will review the review, and then your code gets pushed in production. But at SafeGraph or in a startup, I I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe you It's hard to say, man. It's hard to say because there is an argument to be made at these face, like companies like Facebook and Google. It's like, hey, Nick, you worked on this little measly little onboarding flow, except 200 million new users came to Facebook that year. So 200 million people ran the code that I wrote. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you explain this to anyone else at Facebook, it's like, bro, you worked on this measly little like onboarding thing. Like we work on the newsfeed, we work on ads. Like you're just working on the first little thing that they spend like 10 seconds on <laughs> and then move on with their life. Right. So it's really hard to say about the impact. And I feel like it's like, um, so, you know, someone might say, Hey, I helped 200 million people for like two minutes versus at SafeGraph, I helped way fewer people, but you feel a more sense of ownership of like, wow, I actually changed the course of the business or I actually like shipped this thing or I, I made something that didn't exist before. And if I hadn't pushed for it, it wouldn't be this way. Mm-hmm. So I definitely personally felt like I made more impact at the smaller company because, you know, at a big company, it's just abstracted away that they're like end users. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. in my time at working at Facebook, I don't think a single one of my friends was a new user to Facebook, right? Everyone already had a Facebook. So in a way I helped 200 million people, but in another way, it's like, I don't think I helped anyone I knew versus at the smaller company, we worked on some really niche products, mm-hmm. but you know, a few of my friends who happened to work at other companies at a hedge fund were like, bro, we like, we just got your data feed. And like, it's awesome. And I'm like, dude, that's awesome. That's, that's great. Like you felt that connection because you felt core to the business. Right. So you, maybe you feel more impactful in a startup, but you might not be actually as impactful because at Facebook, you also have a big impact. It's just that you, you don't feel it because you don't see those 200 million users, etc. Right. You you don't see them. Everyone is going to say, thank you, Nick. I stayed more than two weeks. Thanks a lot for your work. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So that's, yeah, that's exactly it. Facebook wins just because look at that user base. It's, you know, working on products that 2.5 billion people use is not trivial. <laughs> All right. So you work at Facebook, then you join SafeGraph, you work there for a while. And after this, you just decide to quit your job, quit everything. And you want to write this Ace the Data Science interview book. So tell me more about this. Like, Why do you want to write this book? Exactly. Yeah, I know it's a pretty random story. So I got to give a big shout out to my co-author, Kevin Huo. So we're friends from high school and we became roommates uh, when we both started at Facebook. So we both happened to work at Facebook and we decided to room together. And he was a data scientist on Facebook groups and I was on the growth team, right? So all day we're cutting along data and we realized there are books like Cracking the Coding Interview and Cracking the PM Interview, but there was nothing around for data folks, nothing for ML folks. And 
we're just like, why has no one done this? So when COVID hit in March of 2020 here in the US, we thought that this might be a perfect time to kind of explore these kind of side ideas that we had Mm -hmm. had. Because it's like, if you can't write a book when the whole world shut down and you're like locked at home, you're never going to write your book. You know what I mean? And similarly, we hate to say it was a great time in the sense that people were losing their jobs and that's terrible. But it also meant that was a good time to put something out there around how do we job hunt better? How can people land jobs? How can they make up for the fact that their internship got rescinded? So around that time, it was something that we felt really moved and compelled to do because we're like, okay, people are losing their jobs and we have time to finally tackle this thing that we've always wanted to tackle. So that's kind of the story of how I decided to leave SafeGraph and work on the book is, uh, yeah, COVID hitting, honestly, was a big, big part of it. How did you feel about the risk of, you know, quitting everything just to write this book? You had, I guess, a good job, right? You did Facebook, you... Yeah, you had a lot of lots of good jobs, so I'm sure you had a good life. And suddenly, yeah. you just decide to quit everything. How did you feel about this risk of just quitting? Yeah, everything? I just used my money in the trust fund. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. No, how did I do that? Okay, so a few things I did was one, I was living in San Francisco, and when COVID hit, I moved back in with my parents um, here in Northern Virginia. Because, hey, I didn't want to be alone and a lot of people moved back in. But I realized in my head, wait a second, if I don't have rent to make, if I gave up my apartment and moved at home and just sheltered in place, I don't have a, I don't have rent to make. I'm not going out to restaurants. I'm not doing anything. All my money is just here. I have nothing to pay. So that was one big thing of like helping to do risk is just like my expenses basically dropped to just be Spotify mm-hmm. and like Google Suite, you know, it was like, immensely that helped other thing is i just saving a lot of money because i'd known i'd want to do something entrepreneurial okay so i made sure to save a lot of money and then third how i de-risked it was i didn't just like wake up and say i want to you know help people with their careers even before covid had started i'd been writing a lot on linkedin about job hunting and had amassed a pretty good following and a pretty good email newsletter size so i already knew that people wanted to hear more from me and liked the advice that I had to give. And I'd already been doing that kind of stuff on the side for like a good year and a half before COVID even hit. So that's sort of like how I de-risked that idea. So it wasn't really just as crazy as like one day I want to be a career coach. It was sort of like I already was into that uh, for a good year and a half before COVID ever hit. All right. So more like a natural transition, COVID maybe pushed things a bit quicker, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. So let's dive a bit into your book now. Like chapter one is about CV. Obviously you cannot get, or you can, but it's the first step usually to get into a job is to have a good CV. So I have lots of friends who are sending me CVs and I see lots of mistakes, but I'm just thinking about your view. What are the common mistakes that people make with their CV? Yeah, I talk about a lot of different mistakes people make in the book, but I think one I can just highlight on the podcast would be people don't realize that irrelevant information is detrimental. What I mean by that is people list all kinds of random facts that actually detracts from their overall presentation because it's like, let's go in machine learning terms, there's signal and there's noise. Mm -hmm. 
why are you adding noise? That only complicates things because someone reading your resume is only looking at it for 10, 15 seconds. So I'll give you an example. People love to list their foreign language. Oh, I know Tamil. I know Telugu. I know Spanish. I know Italian. I know French. But let's say you're looking for a job in the U.S. where everyone speaks English or in technology, they speak English. How could I care that you're trilingual? All I want to know is you know English, you know? And, you know, it's nice. It's like, oh, that's cool. You know, Italian, that's great. But like, you know, that's an extra thing I have to read. And when I'm skimming your resume for 10 seconds, you don't want the person thinking like, oh, look, they're trilingual. You should be like, oh, this guy knows Python and look at what they've worked on, you know? So I think people don't realize how many irrelevant details they have. So one example, you know, this might seem obvious, like, hey, you don't need to list your foreign languages. Mm-hmm. But I'll give you another example. People will list Microsoft PowerPoint. Like, dude, you know deep learning. <laughs> I'm sure you also know PowerPoint. You know, you don't have to write that as a skill. You know Git. Look, you have six projects and you worked as a software engineer. I'm sure you know Git. You don't have to mention that, you know? And same way, people often list irrelevant coursework. Now, if you just don't have a very meaty resume, it's fine, especially to hit some keywords. But if you have really meaty, like a resume and you've worked as a data scientist, you don't need to say that you took a class called, you know, data science 101 at your university. Like I I bet you did, you know, like that's, there's nothing helpful there. Same way, resume, uh, your GPA. If you have a bad GPA, you don't need to list it. Mm -hmm. Listing a bad GPA does not help you. It only detracts from it, right? So just thinking about this in the signal and the noise context and just understanding if the thing is not making you look good, get rid of it because having a very bare bones resume that's just clean, simple, and elegant actually works. Like you don't need to stuff your resume. If you're really, really talented, you might actually have a very simple resume, right? Like my resume is simple. I worked at Facebook. I wrote a book. I don't need to tell you the 700 things I did in writing the book. The fact that I wrote a book that's a bestseller tells you everything you need to know about the book. You know what I mean? Sure, maybe it'll have a few more bullet points, but I don't have to break it down like, okay, I learned this, 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 right? So I feel like that's one of the biggest mistakes I see people making their CV. They just put irrelevant details because they think they need to pad their resume up, but it only hurts them. Yeah, the way I think about a CV is more like a sales page. Like you need to sell yourself and every sentence should be something that sells you and that will make the interviewer wants you. Like I see a lot of friends, they list like job work experience at X and then they list everything they did there, you know, um, automation, algorithm, this, that, presentation. And yeah, that's just not how it works. If you just have one sentence, I use an algorithm to make the billion, uh, the business earn 10 million, you know, that sells you, you know, and this the interviewer is going to see, see this and he's going to want you. So um, exactly. And, and someone might be saying like, hey, but like, I want to tell them about all the cool work I did for that algorithm. Great. Mm-hmm. That's what the interview is for. Yeah. The resume is just to get shortlisted for the interview. When you're in the interview, that's when you can show them on the whiteboard, look at them, my fantastic algorithm, my fantastic design that made that 10 million. But on that resume, you just got to get the interview. So you just got to list that simple fact like, hey, I did this work that made $10 million for the business. The end. And just want to have your view because when I actually, so a few years, just 
at the start or just, yeah, I think just before COVID hit actually was applying to loads of jobs. And at the beginning, what I did, I had no experience is just sending 10, a thousand times the same CV to every company. And I just got no answer, like no reply. And then what I did is like one CV per job, like you need to personalize your CV and make sure it fits the job because each company is going to be slightly different with slightly different requirements. So one CV per job, is that something obvious to you? And do you agree with me that that's the thing to do, even though it takes more time? I I agree with you. And I don't even think that you have to do one per company. If you just do it one per type of role, because so many people are applying to both data science and BI or data science and data analyst or data science and software, right? Or manager versus tech lead, right? There's all kinds of different ways to cut it. So I feel like for each job type, you need a different one. And then a secondly, if you're in the industry, like if you have a lot of experience with insurance or natural language processing, there you can maybe go a little heavier on the details Mm -hmm. about the specific NLP packages you use. But if you're just looking in general for just general machine learning jobs, maybe you don't have to mention all these random NLP terms and NLP key stats and NLP packages you use. Maybe leave it a little higher level. So I think splitting it up that way is also helpful, maybe by type of job you're looking for or the industry the job's in. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So the other thing that's also important to have on your CV, and that's chapter two, I believe, of your book, is to have a good portfolio project. So first of all, what is a portfolio project? And did you have one when you were longer, younger? Because you advised to, to do this. So yeah. yeah. Yes, Neil, I'm not a hypocrite. I had one. It worked <laughs> out well. Yeah. So portfolio projects should showcase your skills. It's a project you just take on your own and they're great, make great fodder for interviews because it gives you something to talk about and something to show a future hiring manager, like that you can actually do the job, you know, like that's what they just want to know. Can you do the job? And you can talk about it in, you can, you know, beat around the bush and say, I have this certification, I have that course and I have that degree, but there's nothing like showing someone you can do the job by like, basically doing the job on your own, putting it up on your GitHub, making a public Tableau dashboard, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, And showing someone that, hey, here's what I actually did on my own. So I highly recommend people do. So uh, do portfolio projects. Um, I personally had a really uh, fun one, which was called rapstock.io. So I loved, I love music, especially hip hop music. So in high school, I was actually a DJ. And I just loved kind of taste making and saying, hey, my music taste is better than your music taste, honestly. And, you know, I wanted to make a game that could kind of build off of that feeling of like, look at me, I have better taste than you do, right? Some kind of like showing off. So fantasy football is this game where you can bet on the performance of football players. Mm -hmm. I wanted to build fantasy hip hop artists, right? So it was uh, called Rapstock.io. So it was almost seen as each wrapper is a stock and you can long or short them. And the price of each wrapper is based off Spotify data. So this is a marketplace where you can kind of bet or make a fantasy hip hop label or hip hop team and have their performance tracked with real world Spotify data. I grew that to 2000 monthly active users. And when I interviewed at Facebook, 
it worked out really well because I was interviewing Facebook's growth team and they're like, whoa, we love that you like made a project on your own. It's creative. It's a consumer product. And you like grew it and you know something about growth engineering. You know what an A-B test is. You ran an A-B test. You know about retention, how crucial retention is in the early days. You built your own onboarding system. Great. We want to talk to you because clearly you can build software for people. And no matter how much leak code we do, how many data structures and algorithms we do, end of the day, software engineering is about building software and consumer, it's for building software for people. So if you can just build software quickly for people, you're going to be in demand. And that's what I did with my project. And I could show them that like, hey, here's what I made. And then here's how I grew it. They're like, all right, come on through. So it's kind of a way to stand. Well, first of all, it's good for your CV, I guess. It can make you pass the CV round because when someone sees that you have an interesting project, that kind of sets you apart from the rest, right? We didn't do yeah. any projects, but you mentioned that it's also good, you think, for the behavioral interview when they ask questions about yourself. Absolutely, right? Because they ask like, hey, tell me about yourself. Like, why, why are you applying to Facebook? And other people are like, oh, I heard they have good food and they pay a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. And I could be like, hey, you guys are the kings of growth engineering. I love growth. Here's how I grew my project. But I want to learn from you guys because you guys know what you're doing. They're like, okay, great. This is not someone who just said something random about like, oh, I use Facebook too. I want to join, right? <laughs> Which is yeah. like what everyone says. Oh, why do you want to work at Google? Oh, because it's Google, right? That's like a... You know, and to be honest, maybe that, that answer is okay. Maybe Google doesn't care, but a smaller company wants to hear a good answer. So showing people like, hey, you know, if you're into healthcare and you can analyze the healthcare data set, that goes a long way in showing people like, hey, I actually like healthcare. In my free time, I'm analyzing healthcare data and doing these cool things. Now I want to get paid for it and like learn more how to do it. People are like, okay, this person is actually genuinely interested because it shows that you're someone who's going to like care. And that actually matters a lot, like that you give a shit about a job. That's yeah. like a good predictor that you'll do good because like half the people don't even care about their job, honestly. They're just like, eh, I'm just here. Yeah, so. that, make, that makes sense. So, so what kind of projects should data scientists do? If you're not interested in music and don't want to do a rapstock.io, what, what, what would you advise? What kind of projects can we do? Do it. If you have a dream company you want to work for, go do it in their domain. So if you want to work in healthcare, go do something with healthcare. If you want to work in finance, go do something financial analytics related. Now, if that sounds boring and you just don't know what industry you might want to work for, then go do it on your own hobby or interest, right? Because my whole thing, I made this project not because I want to work on growth engineering. I only learned about growth engineering from doing the project. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I did the project because I loved hip hop music. So if people work on projects about things they themselves are passionate about, if you love soccer, go do it on that. Love music, you love movies, go do it on that. Here's the reason why this is good advice. Portfolio projects are not easy to finish. They take time and effort. Like it's a slog. Mm -hmm. Now, are you more likely to slog on something that you could care less about? Or are you going to like put in the work if it's something you're passionate about, even if it's like a nerdy or niche hobby? So I know definitely different, different people made some really cool things around StarCraft 2 or basketball or a movie recommender system because their favorite hobby is just to watch Netflix movies. 
So it doesn't really too much matter what domain it's in. It's more about the completeness and the creativity with which you do it. Creativity, that's harder to teach. And, you know, if you're really a pro at movies, you'll know what creative recommendations might look like, or you might have more creative ideas. The completeness is what really matters. <clears throat> so many people are like, Nick, I have the perfect portfolio project idea. Actually, you know what? It's halfway done. And that's like worth nothing, right? Because it just didn't come out. Like you can't show a hiring manager something that's just stuck on your computer locally. So working on things that you actually like and getting them done so that you can put that notebook up or you can put that GitHub repo up with the results and your end-to-end code, that's what really matters. And that's what really sets you apart from others. And maybe something usually, I mean, what I see on LinkedIn or Twitter, the projects that work quite well are usually those with like some nice visualization at the end or some like cool stuff. Is it also something that you would recommend? Like not just a notebook with code, but, you know, um, make sure like someone non-technical can actually see this. And Neil, it looks like you've been reading my book. I forgot to mention that that's in the book. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Visualizations is a really good hack. If you could make a really awesome GIF or image or a little video of what you've done, that's that sets you apart. So every now and then on LinkedIn, you'll see like a machine learning person do some really cool like computer vision project and it'll go viral on LinkedIn. And then people will give them job offers like that just on LinkedIn because it's like, whoa, this person made like um, like a face recognition thing or there's all kinds of really creative projects in computer vision. But visuals really help because then you can even send that link to that visual, like embed a GIF or link to your YouTube video right in the cold email itself. And that really sets you apart. Like, hey, I'm interested in your robotics company. Check out the little self-driving RC car I made. Here's the link. And it's like 10 second video. They're like, oh, dope. Like you actually know what you're doing. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree. Every time I see those on LinkedIn, they usually have, you know, thousands of likes and looks like it's really successful. Whereas if you just mention, hey, I wrote this code, which is in a Jupyter notebook, then it's nice, but yeah, not yeah. as nice, I would say. Um, so yeah, now I want to kind of focus on the technical skills. Um, which, because I think it's very important and yeah, data scientists really need lots of technical skills in order to do well. So yeah, what technical skills do you think we need as data scientists in order to get a job or an interview? So SQL is big. That's usually a common thing in the screens. Coding is also important. Um, SQL coding, some base level stat and probability is also helpful. Usually they're not really like testing it that directly, but often just more conceptually, like do you understand the central limit theorem? Do you understand what a you know p-value is or a confidence interval is? Um, so statistically, a little bit of machine learning. And I think one thing people think too much is like they need to know the ins and outs of deep learning to get a job in this field. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. Just knowing the basic classical techniques like linear regression or sorry, regression in general or decision trees is usually pretty helpful. Being able to talk through why you'd want to use PCA. Those are the kind of bare bones that I would focus on for most data science interviews. That, that's actually a good advice. I think that you don't really need deep learning or have coded you know, the, most, the new transformers with additional layers. Like when I started applying for jobs, 
I told every project needed, I needed to mention deep learning. And if I didn't do deep learning, I told this project isn't worth it. I didn't do deep learning or I didn't do a really advanced algorithm. But actually when I interviewed um, and I spoke to with my interviewer on some past experiences where I actually coded very simple logical algorithms, they were actually very interested by this because it means I could code some deep learning algorithms, but I could also focus on the simple things. And a lot of times in industry, you don't need to write the new transformer or big deep learning algorithms. If you can write a simple algorithm that works, that will do the job. That's even much better than a big deep learning algorithm. Exactly. Most jobs, I mean, most jobs don't have enough data to support deep learning. And if they do, they often don't have the infrastructure in place to train these deep learning models, right? So for most jobs, you don't need that kind of stuff. Regression often is what's needed. So that's what they ask about in the interview. Yeah, no, completely agree. And so there are kind of many skills that you need to know, right? SQL, machine learning, coding, maths. So a lot of people are asking me, Neil, where should I start? I want to learn about data science. I'm doing maths and economics, or I'm doing computer science. I want to work as a data science or in AI. Where should I start? And I don't really have a good answer to this. So what would be your advice? A lot of people have asked me, so much so that I wrote a breaking into data science guide, which we can link in the show notes. Because honestly, Neil, too many people have asked me this and it's like always the same, like 12 questions, like how much math do I need to know? So we'll link that in the show notes. It has a full blueprint of like how I recommend folks in 2022 to start learning data science and like what courses, textbooks, and like free online courses to take to basically upskill themselves. Cool. So is it like a combination of courses, books, and blog posts, things like that? Exactly. Yeah, it's just kind of the roadmap of how I would go about learning it. Cool, thanks. Yeah, well, definitely add this to the footnote. And also another question that people are asking me is, should I do a master or should I do a bootcamp or can I just learn everything online for free? Like it gets more and more expensive, but because there is so much to learn, people are often quite scared of doing everything online. So what do you think? What's the best way to approach this? Yeah, and I actually talk about this in the Breaking the Data Science Guide as well. We talk a little bit more about this. I would say my two cents on the topic is do, do whatever you can do where you can hold yourself accountable. So some people might need to enter a two-year degree to hold themselves accountable to learn the skills. Other people might be more self-motivated and self-taught where it's like, oh, I could just do a boot camp and I'll be fine. And then other people are like, dude, I love this stuff so much. I don't even need a boot camp. I'll just go learn on my own. I think all have merit to them. And it really takes a, like a reflection on your end to like, no, am I the type of person who'd be motivated to like learn two years worth of material on my own? Or do I need that structure and that expectations and that like mentorship that comes with a proper degree. But I don't think that the degree itself is intrinsically like going to teach you 10x better. I think it's just the accountability part. But like, no, what they teach in the universities is for free already on, you know, MIT OpenCourseWare and Harvard's EDX and Coursera. 
So I don't think that's like the differentiator. I think it's the accountability that's the differentiator. Okay. Yeah. That's, I think that makes sense. And that's actually a good advice. Depends on you. If you can learn everything on your own, like, for example, for me, I know I really like those having like an intense year of master with lots of courses. And it's kind of also less effort, I would say, because you don't need to look online for the best course or the resource that you need because Often I just do a course and then halfway through, I realize that's not what I want. That's useless. So yeah, I guess it's kind of depends who you are. And And I'm someone who didn't like school. I love like jumping from topic to topic and learning whatever I want, which is how I found growth engineering. And I like keep shifting my career, right? Because I, I can't go to school to learn how to write a book or become a growth engineer. You know, I just learn whatever I want to learn. So it's different for different people. All right. So I now just want to move to the last part of the conversation, focusing on your career a bit. And yeah, you've had already a quite successful career, right? Microsoft, Google, Facebook, you wrote a book, which is an Amazon bestseller. So I'm just wondering if you've made mistakes in your career, like what are the mistakes that you've made? And if you essentially had to redo your career again, things that you would change? It's so funny you ask me this, right? Because you see I had a successful career and I'm like thinking about like the 700 things I've done wrong already, right? And like, I like, believe me, I know so many wrong things I've done. (laughs) Huge mistakes I made. Um, But luckily I've been able to learn from a lot of them. I think one mistake I made would have been um, there is value in specializing and like sticking with one thing. If you're just generally a person who likes to jump from thing to thing, that the world has a place for you, but you have to work really hard, like harder than people who just decide to shut up, specialize and say, I only like machine learning. And they're not ever distracted by growth engineering and writing a book and LinkedIn and podcasting or anything. They just say, I just like the code. I like machine learning. That's it. The world will reward those people. Now, if you're someone who's like me, who's like, I like data and I like writing a book and I like posting on LinkedIn and giving talks, but I also like to code and I also like to learn math. I just find myself having to work twice as hard. Now it's the life I signed up for, but I feel like what I would tell other people in this position is to realize, Hey, if you like jumping from thing to thing, is that because you don't want to stick to one thing and this is your way of like shying away from hard work. So you just jump when things get tough or is it because you just generally like breadth over depth. So frame that way where it's like, Hey, just because you're jumping from one thing to other, understand you have to work twice as hard. This is the harder approach. It's not the easier one to be like, ah, I got too hard. Let me switch to something else. I think that's something I wish I had learned myself because I don't know. I would have, I'm finding myself right now in my career as like, hmm, what do I do next? And I feel like I don't have a very good obvious answer versus other people in my spot would be like, oh, I just had to make another promotion and I'll get 200K more a year. And I just get promoted again and then again. And I feel like I have to work harder for that answer, but I, I feel like it'll be a more meaningful answer, whatever I do next, but it is harder. And I'm willing to do that. And I kind of knew that I would be setting myself on this journey, but I, I'm not sure if other people know that about like, jumping around and like the loss that happens. It's interesting that you, on your side, you don't, you see a lot of things that went wrong and you, you don't think you had such a successful career, or at least you think you can do much better. 
I remember when we chatted a few weeks ago, I was actually quite impressed because you, at the end of the chat, you asked me, yeah, Neil, by the way, if you see any typo in my book or anything that can improve the book, tell me because I want the book to get better. I want to get better. Uh, I want to get better every day. And obviously, lots of people want to get better every day. I want to get better every day. But you, I could really feel like you really wanted it and you're doing it every day. You're asking the question, how can I get better? So yeah. my first question is maybe more philosophical. Well, not really, but what does it mean for you to get better? Is it like learning a book or reading a book or learning something or a new skill? I don't know. What does it mean to get better? Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that. And it is something I'm trying to focus on, like getting better every day. Um, you've probably seen that like meme of like, if you just grow 1% every day, you mm -hmm. compound that over 365 days you become like a billionaire or something. I don't know how the math works, but you know, <laughs> compounding improvements helps. I think um, what I think about improvement every day, what I think about is I think people make bad decisions because they don't know themselves. Okay. And I feel like a lot of decision-making happens. Like if you know what you want and you know who you are, it's easy to get what you want. The mistake comes from people who are like, don't know themselves well, and then expect to do something else, right? So even going back to your bootcamp example, right? I said, you know what? If you know yourself to be self-motivated to self-learn, go for it. But the trick, the, the issue becomes when if someone thinks they're a motivated self-learner, and then two weeks in, they give up on their dreams because they didn't enroll in a class because they have no accountability. That's where the mistake comes. So said another way, what does improvement mean to me? It means knowing who I am every day more, and then trying to make decisions align with who I am every day. That's what it means to get better because I feel like I could be making better decisions every day, but I also learn something about myself every day, right? Like I didn't know I was a generalist when I was studying software engineering. I just thought I liked software engineering and data. And then I added growth and then I added a book and then I added this, this is, I'm like, oh crap, I love too many things. Maybe I'm not a techie maybe I'm just more of a generalist, right? But I used to see myself as this like nerdy programmer math type. But now I'm like, eh, I don't know. I, I haven't written that much code recently. I've been writing the book, you know? So I think that's one of those things where it's like getting better to me is just like knowing what motivates me and then doing and knowing the things I value and then going after those things like wholeheartedly. Um, yeah. And what do you do then to, to get better every day? What are some things that you do? Because and I also want to get better. So, so yeah, share it. Yeah. So tangible things is I, tr I've been tr tracking key metrics that I think that are important to me. So right now one is my LinkedIn follower count. Yeah. Followers is not the best count ever, but it's just sort of a way to hold myself accountable to keep myself active on LinkedIn. And that's something I hadn't done. So I started writing in LinkedIn in 2018 but I think I went six months without posting a single time. Right now I post every day and I have 75,000 followers, but like there was a time where I went six months without posting and Neil, I already had like 30,000 followers then. So it wasn't even like, Oh, when I started, I didn't have it. It's like, I already had an audience and I just stopped posting. So holding myself accountable through key metrics is one thing I've been trying to do. Two is planning my time out better. And in the end of the week, seeing what actually happened and how did I progress against my big goals. 
I think it's really easy to lose sight of your big goals that you have because day to day you get distracted by, oh, but I saw someone did this thing and I want to try this idea and I want to do this or that. And it's really easy to get distracted from your main tasks once the craziness of the week happens. And you might say, hey, my goal is to be the best machine learning engineer. And you find yourself writing blog posts. It's like, well, that doesn't make you the best ML engineer. There's nothing wrong with writing blog posts, but I don't think that's exactly the same goal as being a good ML engineer, you know? So I think that reflection each week at the end of the week being like, hmm, what did I spend my time on? And is this mapping to my big goals? Because Neil, I'll be honest, so many things I do, I'm like, yeah, it's not a bad thing I did, but it's like, it's not something I had to do. I don't know why I did it. I just did it that week because someone said to do it or it seemed okay at the time, but it's not really aligned with what I'm actually trying to do in the long run. Um, I've just found myself getting distracted so easily. And I feel like in the society where you're always looking at other people and seeing other people's careers and trying to meet other people's expectations and you have your boss and everything, you like lose track of what you actually wanted. Um, So just trying to be more faithful to that. Well, that's actually super interesting. Thanks a lot for sharing your thoughts and what you're doing. I will definitely use some of this. And yeah, I have like probably a thousand other questions that I want to ask you, but I'm going to ask a last one um, because we're almost at the end of the conversation. It's just one advice. Like if you had one advice for someone who want to progress in his or her career, just one advice, what would it be? Be a learning machine. This field is all about learning. So understand that the second you stop learning and start coasting, you might be able to get away with it for a year or two or in this particular job, but it's not going to be rewarded the next time you're on the job hunt and it's not going to be rewarded in the future. So I think prepare yourself to be a learning machine and keep learning something new around your work every day, whether that's domain experience, right? So if you're in healthcare insurance and you're learning about the field, great. Or if it's you're trying to go into management and you learn something more about leadership and managing people, that's also okay. Or if you're a data scientist and you're the only one at your company and you're having to do a lot of data infrastructure or data engineering, go learn more coding and data engineering skills. Whatever it is, keep like learning things in your field, but also slightly adjacent to it so that you can grow your scope. That's, I think, the way to progress in your career is through growing scope. And that happens when you're the data scientist who actually understands healthcare, or you're the data scientist who also knows data engineering, or you're the data scientist who also can lead other data scientists. That's really how you progress. Well, Nick, thanks a lot. was really great to have you here. I showed this book one last time. Like, If you enjoyed the conversation, um, go and read this book if you're looking for a job strongly recommend it and yeah thanks a lot it was great to chat with you have a good day i guess for you in the us and yep. yeah see you soon hopefully great thanks man